It's a privilege to acknowledge you as the Creator and to acknowledge also the fact that not only did you create us and create the earth, but you have indicated in your word that you are the master gardener and that what you do in our life is what you want us to do in the garden that we can see with our own eyes. We ask that you'll be here and be present in Jesus' name. Amen. We can put this first uh, screen and slide up on the screen. Um, want to want to uh, let you know that we're trying to uh, present the why and how to experiencing a lot more from your garden. And uh, there's a really popular book out titled Start With Why. And I really believe that, um, that starting with why is really important. Why would I want to garden? That, I think, is a really important thing because gardening costs money, wife. it takes time, it takes effort, it interrupts your schedule, you can't just go here or go there whenever you feel like it. And so how do you... How do you motivate yourself to do something that is certainly not necessarily the easiest thing to do. And a lot of that comes down to why. Why would I want to do it? What's the motivation? And uh, I'm going to begin by going back to Genesis. And I believe that this point right here that I'm going to share this morning is the not only the underpinning for gardening, but should be the, the kind of the foundation or the basis for life in general. And I think it should inform us even on how we should garden. And I'm going to quote here, you can get the same thought from the King James or, or other versions, but I really like the way that it's put here in the Common English Bible. It says, there was still no human being to farm the fertile land, and the Lord God formed the human from what? From the topsoil of the fertile land. Isn't that an interesting way? We always hear we were formed from the dust of the earth. Now, the fact is, is that I have a hard time believing that God actually used dust to form man because of obviously he's supernatural, and so he can do anything he wants because of his abilities. But uh, the idea of shaping something from topsoil certainly sounds a lot more practical, and it certainly is an interesting concept. He blew into his nostrils the breath of life, and the human came to life. Now, then moving a little bit later as it goes through this, this um, story, it says the Lord God took the human and settled him in the Garden of Eden to what? To farm it and to take care of it. Now, the word to that I've highlighted there is, according to the dictionary, is a word that's used to indicate purpose. I think we all know that. So, the reason that God put us in the garden was to farm it and take care of it. So, when you look here at the sequence of events, God planted a garden in Eden and... That garden that he planted needed to be what? 
It needed to be taken care of. Have you ever seen a garden that didn't need to be taken care of? So, when you actually very carefully go through Genesis 2, 4 to 8, you actually see this clearly presented. God created man to fill a need that the garden had. Have you ever heard of that concept? God, you know, we often think of, of this, that God made the world for us. We're up here, we're the king, and everything there was made to serve our needs, our wishes, our desires, any want that we could imagine, God already put it in there. The animals were there for us to have pets, to enjoy, and, uh, and, the, and the food was there for us to eat, and the weather was perfect. Everything was there to take care of me. When Jesus came to this earth, he debunked that theory. He said that in the world you hear this concept that those who are at the top are served by everybody else. But he said, it is not to be so for you. He said, the one who's at the top is to be the servant of all. In fact, he said, you call me master and Lord, and that's right, I am. But what did he do? He became the servant, all right? So you see, God actually... God actually has this, this, this deal that God created the world for us to serve, to take care of. All right? So you see here in these first two sequences of events that are put here in Genesis, God planted the garden and the garden needed to be farmed, so he created man from the earth and put him in the garden to take care of it. Now, I'm going, to, I'm going to try to illustrate this with a, a simple, a simple uh, circle here, okay? God intended that man would contribute to the garden. We're supposed to take care of it and to meet its needs, and in turn, the garden contributes to man. Now, I hope you'll see in a minute why that's a really important concept. Here from Desire of Ages, it says, Sin has marred God's perfect work, yet His handwriting remains. There's nothing save what? The selfish heart of man that lives unto itself. Okay, only us think about our, our needs, our wants, our desires, plan and work accordingly. It says, there's no leaf of the forest or a lowly blade of grass, but has its ministry. Every tree and shrub and leaf pours forth that element of life without which neither man nor animal could live. So that's what one of the things that the garden is doing for you. Now, of course, it's producing food and other things too, but it's also producing the element of life. And we think of oxygen, and I would like to say that there is other things that I think are included in that besides oxygen. Anyway, it says sorry, that man and animal in turn minister to the life of tree and shrub. So here you see this concept that I just mentioned being, being mentioned or being described there that there's this circle where man contributes 
to the needs of the earth, and the earth contributes to the needs of man. It's a perfect circle. And we see that further described here in the next paragraph in Desire of Ages, page 21. It says, Turning from all lesser representations, we behold God and Jesus. Looking unto Jesus, we see that it is the glory or character of our God to give. In these words is set forth a great principle, which is the law of life for the universe. Pastor Wolberg this morning talked about the law, the law of love. This is the law. The reason it's the law of love is because it's, it is all about taking to give. All things Christ received from God, but he took to give, and thus through Christ the circle of beneficence, or the circle of love, is complete, representing the character of the great giver, the law of life. Everything in the universe, save the selfish art of man, Everything in the universe is designed around this principle that it, it functions to benefit something else. And in so doing, in, in functioning to benefit something else, it is actually benefiting itself. When you, when you look at the honeybee going out and pollinating the flower, what is it doing? It is continuing the life so there'll be more flowers in the future for it to live on. It is getting the nectar from the plant for its own needs, but it's giving to the plant the pollination that the plant needs. Everything there, and as you start understanding more and more of the science of biology from a Christian perspective, you, it's amazing how this principle is everywhere. And um, hopefully, hopefully we can understand that more. Now, to finish up this, this um, you might say, the philosophy of gardening point, I have what I've coined the packed cup principle. We're very familiar with this. I learned this, this text I remember in primaries, and that was more than two years ago. Give, and it will be given unto you, Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be put into your bosom. And notice the next sentence. For with the same measure you use, it will be measured back to you. What is a measure? Does anybody know what a measure is? It's the size of container that you're using, right? So, so, it says the same, the same measure or the same container that you use to give with is the same container you're going to get given back to you with one caveat. God's going to press it down, shake it together, pack it down, and it will still run over. So in other words, in other words the more you give, the more you're going to receive back. But it's the, same, it's the same container size. Now, I want you to keep that in mind because uh, in a couple minutes, I'm going to, I'm going to uh, apply that to the garden. Okay, and I want to emphasize that point. The same container size you use 
to give with is the container size that God fills up to give you back. And any time that you give, it will be given back to you, but using the same container. So if we, give a, if we use a small cup, what are we going to receive? A small cup. So there's a lot of people who don't feel like they're getting much out of their garden. Why? To a large degree, because it's the cup size they're using or the container size they're using. Now, that container size, I would hasten to add, is not necessarily the measure of the effort you put into it. I believe that there should be some intelligence put into it, and it's the measure of intelligence you put. You can work really, really hard and get nothing back, but you can't work really, really intelligent and get nothing back. Okay? So intelligent gardening is what is really, I think, going to to be talked about here. And here's this principle here. You give to the garden that same circle, you give to the garden, and whatever container size you give will be given back to you, stuffed, packed, and overflowing. So the garden will always give you back more than you put into it if you use a large, intelligent-sized container, or a large container measuring the intelligent input, and... um, um, this is where I think that, that we are today. Okay? We have a few producers growing food. It's very interesting if you look at USDA statistics and you look at how many farms there were in 1950 and how many farms there are today, you see that there are fewer and fewer and fewer people producing more and more food. And what are the rest of us doing? We're consumers. Now, when you go back and you think about this principle that I mentioned earlier, the circle of beneficence that represents the law of life for the universe, if you take and take and take and you don't give anything back, what happens to you? You are unplugging yourself from life. And I would like to suggest, and I know it sounds strong, but I would like to suggest that if we consume food and we aren't involved in the producing food cycle, we are missing a very critical component of life. God designed man to put him in the garden to produce the food. And when we uncouple ourselves from that principle, and I am simply taking without giving, I can expect a lot of problems. I believe it is a fundamental, it is as much a part of God's law as the Sabbath and the seventh commandment and the eighth commandment and the ninth commandment and any other commandment, I believe that this circle has to be there of taking and giving. They both have to be present. So, now that I've said that, what can gardening give me in exchange for the effort and investment that I give the garden? That's always the that's always the thing. And, and it's particularly important. Everybody, in fact, I see some, some gestures indicating that. Everybody thinks, what do I get out of the garden? Food, right? 
If I get only food from the garden, is it worth gardening for? Maybe and maybe not. It depends on whether you're a connoisseur of garden food. There are people who, there are people who say, you know what? You cannot buy anywhere a tomato like you can grow in your own garden. Is that right? But, okay, I can tell you that I grow a way better tomatoes than you can get at the restaurant. But do I take my, rest, my tomatoes with me to the restaurant or do I avoid eating at the restaurant because I don't find as good a quality tomatoes there? No, I put up with an inferior quality tomato, right? You see, if your only thing that you're going to get out of the garden is a superior tomato or a superior cantaloupe, you're probably not going to garden unless you're automatically disposed that way or have established some habit patterns that way because it's awful easy to get at least a, a passable piece of fruit from the grocery store. And what I would like to really, really emphasize is that the garden has a whole lot more to offer me than food. A whole lot more. In fact, my ability to appreciate the food that I get from the garden to a large degree depends on what other stuff the garden has to give me. Are you prepared to, to uh, at least give that a, a, um, a fair hearing? What else can the garden give you? Exercise. I was waiting for somebody to say that. Yes, you know what? Exercise is super, super important, but you know what? I don't have to garden to exercise. And if you are a, if you are a, um, some of the contemporary exercise physiologists, they will tell you that gardening is an okay exercise, especially as you start getting more gray, but you're not going to get a good aerobic workout from the garden, and you're not going to get good strength training from the garden, and so it should be just part of your exercise. Now, I, I'm not... You, I'm have not. To, you have to have an interjection here, though, because if you read um, the great books, I think all of us have hopefully read it, but how she talks about exercise taken for just needing to do exercise is not as good as when you exercise to, um, to do something, to produce something. Yes. To, and that's why exercise in the garden is better. Okay, okay. You've convinced me. Thank you. You know, it's, um, it's, really, it's really important to understand when you go back, and that's why I wanted to share this, this, this circle, the full circle garden. When you understand that in order for God's blessings to be maximally realized, God's law, the law of the universe, the law of life, the law of love, every way you want to look at the law, it is built around the idea of taking and giving, taking and giving. And uh, so, so if you want to get the maximum benefit from exercise, like Amy said, exercise that is just there to pump muscles is not as beneficial to your overall health as is exercise where you're actually doing something useful. Okay? Now, I'm going to list six things, and I'm only going to comment on a few of them. 
But um, this one here is a very surprising one. Brand new information out that uh, gardening gives you a better performing brain. Improved mental health, stress relief, enhanced health overall, safe food, and spiritual understanding. Now, I would love to be able to go over all those, but because we have a very limited amount of time, I'm going to uh, not cover everything, at least certainly not very well. Uh, Here's a very interesting uh, study that first came out in 2010. You guys can see that up there on the slide. Are we mice? No, we're not mice. But what always happens with these studies, I'm just going to give you a, a, a bit of an of a explanation there. This one here? Okay. When, when, when new ideas... When new ideas come to some researcher's head, however it comes, the first thing that, a, that they do is they test that on animals, whether you agree with that or not, um, they test that on animals in order to see whether there's a physiological basis for it. Now, it is true that sometimes, and in Sometimes, and in certain ways, did everybody get that? Okay, I'll just leave it there for a minute more. Sometimes, the physiology of a rat or a mouse or some other animal is enough different from humans that that effect does not carry through. But when it comes to some of these experiences that I'm going to be talking about, the exposure to Mycobacterium vaccae is... is um, has been demonstrated to have a similar effect physiologically on the human as on the animal. So this is a new study, and uh, it was presented in 2010 at the 110th General Meeting of the American Society for Microbiology, and it's the study in essence. It's a very interesting study if you read the whole thing. But uh, I just limited myself to two paragraphs from the study, and it says that mice exposed to this particular soil bacteria, Mycobacterium vaccae, um, were able to negotiate through a maze twice as fast as those in the control group and exhibited a reduction in anxiety behaviors as well. Now, when you think about it, you have a mouse and you're trying to determine whether the mouse is actually getting smarter or not. How do you do that? How do you know whether the mouse is getting smarter? Well, Putting them through a maze is the best way that they can determine intelligence in rats and mice and things like that. So uh, that's one of, the, one of the principal ways. And so they put the mice in a maze and they found that the mice who were exposed to this bacteria, and they put the bacteria in peanut butter and fed it to the, fed it to the mouse. And it's important because I'm going to make a comment about that in a minute. So they let them eat this bacteria. And it actually made them so much more intelligent that they were able to negotiate the maze twice as fast. New research, so 
they haven't been able to go out to the classroom and take your kid or your grandchild and feed them this bacteria and see if they can do their school with two grade points average better, right? But um, there's a physiological basis for it. Now, I want to read the summarizing paragraph that the researchers presented in their um, talk to the American Society for Microbiology. It says, as we have become more urbanized, we have had less contact with an organism that may actually be very useful. If you think about it, when we look at our history, we spent a lot of time, talking about in the past, in agriculture where we had lots of contact with the soil, which is the primary place where this particular bacteria resides. It has only been the last hundred years or so that we've become more urbanized and are eating our food in different ways. I want to ask you a question. If you thought that working in the garden would actually make you more intelligent, would that be a good motivation for trying to get at least some time in the garden? I mean, at least then you could win the argument with your spouse, right? My wife tells me that, well, I shouldn't tell. <laughs> she says that um, she never wins an argument with me. Well, I have the opposite perspective, but... But that's okay, because he's smarter <laughs> than me. No. So, if you um, look at the next slide, anybody who was here last year saw this picture. Now, I have other pictures that are more recent, but... Um, I like this picture. It's actually and my favorite is picture. My, it's my very favorite picture of our granddaughter. because This is our number two granddaughter. I just think that's where kids should be. They should be in the garden with their, with their parents. And uh, her dad, her dad um, is working on his master's degree, so he's, he's um, not your typical gardener. I mean, I shouldn't say your typical gardener. He's not your typical farmer. He's... Um, he is passionate about his kid getting exposed to the dirt, as you can see here. And um, she absolutely is having a grand time. Now, after they sent me this picture, then I showed them this magazine article. This is from Discover Magazine. Is dirt the new Prozac? When you look at how many people in this country right now are struggling with some kind of, of less than optimum mental health. Sure, which, which one do you want? Okay, I'll leave this one up here. Okay? When you, when you think about how extensive depression and any kind of of thing similar to that is becoming. And then you ask the simple question based on our prior paragraph that said, you look at how we have deviated from our soil-based culture. Deviating from our soil-based culture, you ask yourself, is there a connection? How many people today are spending 15 or 20 minutes at least a day actually rooting around in the soil. Reading this, this excerpt 
from, the, um, from this particular article, which, by the way, um, I lifted this picture, obviously, off of the um, Discover magazine. But the article was originally published in Neurology magazine, or the Journal of Neuroscience, I can't remember which. Anyway, look at this right here. The results so far suggest that simply rooting around in the garden could help elicit a jolly state of mind. You can also ingest, remember I said they took the, the mice and fed them mycobacteria mixed in their peanut butter. Here it says, you can ingest mycobacteria through eating plants. And notice the next line. Lettuce that you pick from the garden. Mycobacterium does not stick around forever. So when you get the lettuce and the rain has splashed dirt on the lettuce leaves, or you pull the carrot out of the ground and there's a little thin film of dirt even after you wipe it off and eat it. Now, um, it's probably worth mentioning here that it is becoming widely accepted in the medical community, the hygiene hypothesis. In fact, it's accepted by the CDC, Centers for Disease Control, as, a, as the best explanation, uh, and I wish that I had time to mention it here, the hygiene hypothesis says that you need to be exposed to bacteria and other, and other dirt, if I can use that term, in order to have a healthy immune system. And what's happened is that each generation that gets removed from the farm is becoming more cleanly-centered, we're, we're putting sanitary wipes on everything. And interestingly enough, that is, there is a lot of scientific evidence that is suggesting very strongly that that is contributing to autoimmune disorders, allergies, asthma, etc. And um, interestingly enough, yes. You know, they have done some research on that, and it appears to be, but this is, this is really just in the last three, four years that this kind of stuff is really starting to get, um, get coverage. Um, and the, the question was, does the bacteria get taken up by the plant? In other words, is the bacteria systemic, or is it on the surface? And it appears to be only on the surface, as opposed to being systemic. Now, um, so, has everybody had enough time on this slide? Going to go to the next one. Now, notice, remember this, this study said that rooting around in the garden and eating plants that you pick from the garden gives you exposure to mycobacteria, which can have a profound effect upon your mental state. Now, notice the next paragraph here from Manuscript 13. Families and institutions should learn to do more in the cultivation and improvement of land if people only knew the value of the products of the ground which the earth brings forth in their season, more diligent efforts would be made to cultivate the soil. Now you go back to what I said at the beginning. If you see the benefits, it motivates you 
put out the effort. And that's exactly what this statement here says. If you could see how good it was to get this produce, you would be willing to put out more diligent effort to cultivate the soil. Now, this last sentence is very, very fascinating. She said, all should be acquainted with the special value of fruits and vegetables fresh from the orchard and garden. Now, what in the world is the special benefit of fruits and vegetables fresh from the garden? Well, yes, it's true that when you harvest anything, the antioxidants begin to break down and there is a decrease in the nutritive value over time. That is true. But the implication here, I think that this statement is pregnant with possibilities that there's a lot more involved than just the level of lycopene in your tomato. And I think that we are just beginning to barely understand that. Did you know that you're only 10% human? Bacteria cells, bacteria, living, free-living bacteria on and in you outnumber your human body cells 10 to 1. So what's you and what's the bacteria? This is, this is all just, just exploding new research. They're finding out that the bacteria in and on you are intricately involved in, in body communication. A lot of the signals that your brain gets about what's happening to you is actually coming through the bacteria. And so, so a healthy bacterial population is... Um, is very important for optimum health. So, going to, um, so I looked at how you can get a happy sense from working in the soil and from eating food that has been exposed to dirt. They did a study here a few years ago, 2009 it was published, People who had been diagnosed with depression, persistent low mood, or bipolar disorder spent six hours a week growing flowers and vegetables. 72% experienced improvement in their mental health. And the interesting thing was, the study lasted for three months. They did, they did a battery of tests before, during, and after. And then they had a follow-up test of mental mood three months after the study, and at that time, the benefit was still persisting. So, gardening, um, and then notice this one here, from uh, Councils in Health. For nervous, gloomy, that's depressed, patients, outdoor work is invaluable. Let them have flower beds to care for. In the use of rake and hoe and spade, what do you use those things in? In the dirt. In working in the dirt, she's saying, you will find relief for your maladies. Now, part of that comes from exercise. It's a holistic thing. My, my, uh, my point that is you can't say it's one thing that's just the super end-all end of, of benefits. The fact is, is that when we work the soil... And come back to this again. When we work the soil, what we give, we are repaid back. How? 
good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. We, we invest energy and effort, sweat, and tears in the soil, and that is actually a negative feeling, right? So, so if I go from here to here while I'm exercising, I'm giving some of my feelings to that dirt, especially when it isn't a very good dirt, and then I might give him my feelings very, very forthrightly. But it gives it back to me enriched. Whatever sacrifice I make to the garden comes back to me multiplied, increased, benefited, like it says, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. One other one, and this one is very important to me, because um, I'm not quite here, but I'm looking pretty, pretty close up at that age group. And uh, I don't have any intention of being in my 60s and 70s and having a quality of life that is anything less than the absolute best that I can experience. Now notice what it says here. In this one or the other one? Yeah, okay. Two separate studies that followed people in their 60s and 70s for up to how long? 16 years. This was no flash-the-pan study. Okay? Two separate studies that followed people in their 60s and 70s for up to 16 years found that those who garden regularly had a 36% lower risk of dementia if you're in your 60s and a 47% lower risk of dementia if you're in your 70s. Okay? Now I want to ask you a question. My grandmother had dementia. My grandfather did not. He died with a sound mind. And after watching the last 10 years of both of their lives, I said, you know, there, that is something, my mind is something that I want to treasure to the very last. Now the fact is, is that oftentimes we have no control over it, so I'm not, going to, I'm not going to want to even hint that I would lack sympathy for somebody who, who begins to lose all their cognitive function, but rather to emphasize the fact that being able to appreciate friendships, relationships, my four grandchildren, which hopefully will be multiplied many times over, and, and my spouse, and the beauties of nature, and good health, and everything else, being able to appreciate that with the mind that God has given me is something that is, to me, worth a lot. Now here, all you had to do to get that benefit was what? Garden. Gardening reduced your risk, if you're in your 70s, by almost half. Now, I think there's a lot of other factors involved and a lot of other ways in which you can reduce your, reduce your risk. And uh, I'm not going to say there was necessarily even anything magical about it, but I'm going to say that the evidence is there that gardening improves your brain makes you sharper, more able to understand truth, 
more clever in your ways of understanding how to share that with other people because it isn't just so that I can get a better paying job or that I can or that I can do anything for myself. The fact is I want a maximum intelligence in order to more effectively share the blessings that God abundantly has bestowed upon me on someone else. Does that make sense? So if I can be, if I can be experiencing life to the full, it compounds the attractiveness of the truth that I am trying to share with someone else. So if I come to, if I come to, to you and I'm telling you all the woes in my life, but it should be good for you to join my faith, is that going to be as effective as somebody who's effervescent and bubbly and enthusiastic and, and filled with gratitude to God for the quality of life that he's given us and you share that with somebody and why they would be blessed by knowing the same Jesus that you know. So, um, here it says that um, from Adventist home, the constant contact with the mystery of life and the loveliness of nature. See, there's more than just the mycobacteria. The constant contact with the mystery of life and the loveliness of nature, as well as the tenderness called forth in ministering to these beautiful objects of God's creation. This statement right here is in reference to gardening. Your vegetables and your flowers. This is not talking about animals. The constant contact with the mystery of life and the loveliness of nature, as well as the tenderness called forth in ministering to these beautiful objects of God's creation, tends to quicken the mind and elevate the character. What is the blessing involved in taking care of these plants? What does it mean to quicken? To have more life? To work faster? Any of those kinds of things. It's the very things that I'm talking about here in this whole section. Improved mental health and a more powerful brain, if you want to say that, um, as well as an elevated character. Now, here's, a, here's one for, for our, um, our times today. After completing a stressful task, two groups of people were instructed to either read indoors or garden for 30 minutes. Then they took the two groups of people and they, they measured them before and after. They drew the blood, did the, did the cortisol test to see how much stress hormone was circulating in their system. Today, when people get stressed, and I know that that's the case, it's the way I am, I come back from a stressful day and you want to plop down in a chair and read a book or watch a TV program or something, you feel exhausted. And if, in fact, we get out in the garden for just 30 minutes, they compared the difference in the people who actually garden had what kind of experience. They said they felt better and the blood test proved it. So those are some of the benefits that you get from gardening. And um, I mentioned at the earlier on that um, 
course, we all know that the garden gives us food. That's the obvious thing it gives us. And um, today, today I think it's very important benefit that we get safe food when we garden. Or we can. Um, those of you who were here last year, I shared a whole bunch of data and uh, I'm going to limit myself to one particular aspect because there's a lot of things that are happening in food today that, um, that you don't see. Um, just, there's a paper that a Dr. Stephanie Seneff um, published in the journal Entropy. Has anybody heard of Stephanie Seneff? Okay. Dr. Seneff is a senior research scientist at MIT. Good credentials, if anybody knows science. Senior research scientist at, at MIT. And uh, she began researching, she began researching autism and why it is that we are seeing an, a, a, an exponential increase in autism. And um, five years ago, we were at 1 in 150 had autism, or ASD, autis Autism Spectrum Disorders. Okay? Do you know what the number was in March of this year? 1 in 50. 1 in 50. At the current rates of growth, in 20 years, every second male born in this country will be autistic. Now that ought to make a difference to everybody. And I'll tell you why it makes, should make a difference. I mean, number one, you cannot have an economy when 50% of the males in this country are severely affected in their ability to function in an optimal manner. And, of course, from a relationship perspective, um, anybody who's interested in having a relationship with a male certainly should be concerned about what that's going to do to the pool of eligible males. Um, so, do you know what she discovered is the driving force behind autism? The compound glyphosate. Does that make any Ring any bells? What is glyphosate? Glyphosate is the active ingredient in Roundup. Genetically modified crops are generally genetically modified crops are generally modified with a gene to be trademark Roundup ready, which means glyphosate ready. Which means, if you've ever watched a, a, a Roundup commercial, the commercial says that it kills it clear to the roots. How does it do that? It's systemic, right? Roundup is absorbed through the leaves and is translocated to every part of the plant, including the part you eat. Now, normally, that would kill the plant. But in Roundup Ready plants, 
they have put a gene in there so it makes it so that those plants don't die, so they just accumulate Roundup. So the glyphosate builds up in the corn, in the soybeans, or the cotton seed that you get in the cottonseed oil, and, and so on and so forth. And the glyphosate changes the chemistry in the plant. And that glyphosate is ingested by you. It has a half-life of six months, which means that after, sorry, 60 days, which means that after 60 days, half of it is still there, but that's after it's exposed to environmental factors, not while it's in the food. The bacterial gut, or the, sorry, the gut bacteria that, that um, I mentioned that we have so much of and that is so important to our health, they happen to be susceptible to glyphosate. And so there's a whole lot of all kinds of health issues that begin to come out of the impact that glyphosate has on your gut bacteria. And uh, so overall, she's linked this, this um, glyphosate to many of the diseases that we experience in, in our modern times, especially things relating to um, um, your gut. Anything to do with allergies and leaky gut syndrome and, and so on and so forth, as well, of course, autism and depression. What's that? You know, if you want to watch it, if you want to watch it, you can go on YouTube. There's an interview between Dr. Stephanie Seneff and uh, Jeffrey Smith. Can't remember anyway. The the guy from uh, yes, it's N S R S E N E F F Seneff. Okay, but if you look for if you type in a, U, a YouTube search and you type in Darth Vader and Monsanto and uh, this interview between uh, Jeffrey and Stephanie Seneff will come up and it's an hour and some minutes long and it's a very, very interesting interview. She tries to make the whole thing very uh, understandable to lay people and uh, it's actually one of the most sobering um, presentations that I've seen. It's what was, very compelling. It, it, will, it will really change the way you look at food. One of the things that came out of that that I hate to have to say because my wife, we're watching this thing and she's sitting there in the background doing what my wife does very well. That's wrong. They shouldn't do that. And, uh, and then they announced that, you see, so we say, okay, that means that I, of course, which I already been trying to avoid, eating GMO corn and that kind of stuff, right? Did you know that many of the grains and legumes that you eat, they kill the plants with Roundup to help them to facilitate the drying? And I, I wasn't unaware of that, but I had never made the connection. So, so to clarify, these are not the GMO things. These are things that you thought were safe, like lentils and, and stuff like that. I mean, I was so angry when I watched this. I, I was just furious. Anyway, I mean, it, it's so wrong. But anyway, see what I said? Okay. So, so, okay, so what they do is, is you see, if you have a plant like a, a pinto bean or a lentil, for example, or an oat, okay, 
the crop grows, it matures. These are conventional crops, of course, but they're not genetically modified crops. These are just, these are ordinary things that are not GMO species at all, okay? But they have to, those things have to dry down to a certain moisture content before they can take them out of the field. So in much of the country, you can't guarantee that there's not going to be a rain between when the plant reaches maturity and when it's dry enough to harvest. So if it gets partially dry and then it gets a good rain on it, then, the, then the, it can start to mold and, uh, and be harder to harvest. So what they do is they go in there when the crop is mature and they spray Roundup on the crop to kill the plant and facilitate or accelerate the drying. So they can get the crop out of there before, and you see it kills the crop. But they don't care because they're, they're, trying, they're killing it to get it dried. Yes. No, they can't do that. That is, you cannot, we're talking about, that's why I specified it's conventionally grown non-GMO crops. Okay, so... What was surprising to me was, see, in order to keep the food budget down, of course, we, we say, well, we're going to eat organic food as much as we can, and definitely organic when it comes to anything that's gen that might potentially be genetically modified. But now we realize that, you know what, this glyphosate can be in a lot of things that you don't think about. Your quick oats that you have for breakfast, and the lentils that you cook your mess of pottage, for your dinner. And just to clarify that, that would be that it could say certified non-GMO on it, correct? I believe so. I would have to check that. I don't know how the GMO project, non-GMO project works. But there is no genetically modified organism there, so I would assume that that, that would be non-GMO, but it could be still containing glyphosate that is, that is really messing up your body potentially. Um, now, so there's a lot of things you can go out there and you can buy, and that's, that's really what I want to emphasize, is that you can buy a lot of things. You can buy them from a grocery store, but you don't know what's in it. You don't know what it's been exposed to. Unless, of course, you get a farm box from Good News Farm. Got to put a plug in for that. But... I want to, I want to um, point out that there's a, lot of, there's a lot of things that can get into your food that you don't think about. And of course, that's one of the wonderful benefits of gardening is that you can make intelligent choices about what you're putting on your garden and therefore what you're actually going to be eating. And, um, and I'm, I'm going to... I'm going to mention antibiotics for the purpose of pointing out that organic farming, organic gardening is strongly associated with manure. And, and um, manure from a commercial organic farmer standpoint is generally going to come from a CAFO, a concentrated animal feeding operation. And if you go down to your big box retailer or even your little box retailer and you buy an organic fertilizer 
for your food, for your plants. If you read the label, it's likely to contain some kind of typically either steer or poultry, manure, feathers, something. Okay? The, I hope that after I share the next few slides with you, you will, you will agree with me that that's not a good idea. Okay, starting here with um, data released by the FDA. In 2009, 28 million pounds of antibiotics were used on agricultural animals. 28 million pounds. Now, that's the equivalent of every man, woman, and child in the United States taking a prescription for azithromycin every two days. Okay? Now we'll get to why that's, a, why that's a factor in a minute. Okay? Today, close to 70% of all antibiotics and related drugs used in the United States are routinely fed to cattle, pigs, and poultry. People have long been exposed to antibiotics in meat and milk. Now the new research shows that they may be ingesting them from vegetables, perhaps even ones grown on organic farms. Because the organic farms, the National Organic Program, allows unrestricted use of manure from any source as long as it's been composted or you wait several months before you eat the fruit from it because they don't want the, they're worried about the E. coli and other foodborne illness pathogens there. That's what they're worried about. They're not worried about the antibiotics. And uh, this comes from the Scientific American. This came, to, this came to light when the University of Minnesota did a study in 2005. This was the first time anybody, as far as we know, ever explored that. They said, what happens to those antibiotics? There was an assumption that they broke down very quickly when they were put out on the field. But they actually put some out there in the field and planted some crops and then took the crops that came off of that and analyzed them and discovered that they contained antibiotics. In other words, the antibiotic is fed to the animal. It passes through the animal almost entirely, comes out in the feces. The feces is put on the field where the rains cause it to run off and get into all kinds of water sources, but it also gets into the field, is taken up by the plants and ingested by the humans, and antibiotics, by their very nature, kill bacteria. Now, when you go back and look at what the bacteria are doing for you, this, all this new information that we're learning about how, how your health, your mental state, your happiness is very closely linked to those bacteria and their health and happiness in your gut, it's not a good deal. But, in addition, we have methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus, MRSA. I'd like to um, read this paragraph here. I'm going to... Um, for the sake of time, just read the last sentence. A recent study conclusively linked the routine use of antibiotics in food animals with the rise of MRSA, which now kills more people than AIDS, and uh, 
be Louise Slaughter, who is making this statement, says, if that's not a public health crisis, I don't know what is. And of course, I wish that you could see all the data. It's, it's, it's a huge potential problem or a huge problem. They found that 49% uh, of hogs and 45% of farm workers had a new strain of MRSA. In other words, working around the animals that are being fed these things is creating these resistant bacteria that are getting onto the people, in the people, and are creating these potential disease problems as a result of that. This one here, drug-resistant strains are becoming widespread. They did this test, and, uh, which was published in 2011 in the journal Clinical Infectious Diseases, and they did samples of meat uh, all over the countryside, and 47% of the samples of meat were contaminated with these resistant bacteria. Now, I think that this one here, to me, is a lot more important than even MRSA. But it's, it, is, it is the basis for why these resistant strains are becoming important in part. Scientists believe that antibiotics may have contributed to the explosive rise in asthma and allergies in children over the last 20 years. When I was a kid, I did not know anybody who was allergic to anything. I knew one child, when I was a child, I knew one child who had asthma. And he was, he was because he had asthma, he was weird. He had to be careful what he did, and he had to squirt things in his mouth, and so on and so forth. And it was like, he was just kind of like, different. And you look at where we are today, it's like, it's like half the people you meet are allergic to something. Where did we get from where we were in, in just in my lifetime? Where did we get from where we were to where we are now? And uh, this is from a well-respected journal, Environmental Health News, that scientists believe that the widespread use of antibiotics might be a contributing factor. And the last one here, and this, this is from Scientific American from last year. Unfortunately, the inadvertent destruction of beneficial microbes, those germs that are living on you and in you and around you, by the use of antibiotics, may be leading to an increase in autoimmune disorders and obesity. Obesity. Did you ever think that it's not just the calories that you're putting in? We have a very finely tuned body that's fearfully and wonderfully made. There's a brain in your gut. Did you know that? An actual brain that controls the working of your appetite and digestion processes. That gets many of its signals from, the, from your gut bacteria. When we start messing with those bacteria, 
by being exposed to these antibiotics and you don't see, you didn't go out there and start eating bacteria, I mean eating antibiotics. I mean once in a while you have to do that because you have an infection. That's not the problem. All of this exposure to antibiotics that's everywhere, they're, they're, they're invisible. They're on your food, they're in your food, is messing with your body and making things happen to you that you don't understand why and is causing you a lot of reduction in the quality of your life. And uh, I love this. This is the, uh, the last thing that I'm going to say. Arizona State University. I come from more of the Tucson area, so we're University of Arizona. ASU is in Phoenix. They teamed up with Johns Hopkins University, one of the leading medical universities in the nation. And because of all this, all this MRSA stuff that I've just been talking about, there's one antibiotic that by law is banned from any use on animals because it is the last line of defense against MRSA, and it's called fluoroquinolone. And, and uh, they need that thing not to get, the bacteria not to get resistant to that antibiotic so that if you come in there and you have MRSA, they can pull that off the shelf if nothing else works. But they noticed that resistance was beginning to develop in the bacteria to this particular antibiotic. And they suspected that even though it was banned to be used, that it was being used. But of course, these big feed operations wouldn't acknowledge that they were doing it, and there was no way of knowing whether they did or not. So they came up, ASU and Johns Hopkins came up with a very clever way of testing for it. They said, you know, we're going to take feathers from chickens and we're going to have a lab assay done to test whether there's fluoroquinolone in the feathers of the chickens. Because if they're ingesting the fluoroquinolone, it will show up in the feathers. So they collected samples of feathers from all over the country, and they went to a lab that would do the test on fluoroquinolone, and the lab said, oh, by the way, that test is part of a, a battery of other tests that we do. Do you want us to do all the tests at no extra cost? So the researchers said, sure, why not? So they sent that off and uh, tested, and when the results came back, even the researchers were surprised. Okay? Look at this. Actually, I'm going to look at this one first. All the samples had between two and ten different antibiotics, Eight of the 12 samples contained the banned antibiotic fluoroquinolone, so even though it's banned, they're using it, and the level of fluoroquinolone in the feathers was high enough to induce antibiotic resistance in actual bacteria tests. Bad news, right? But this was what was funny. The other tests that came along at no extra cost, look at what else they were feeding the chickens. Ten of the twelve had caffeine. Why were they feeding caffeine to chickens? To keep them awake. Isn't that why people eat caffeine? They want the chickens to stay awake. Why? So they'll eat more. If they eat more, they get fatter faster. Makes you wonder what happens if you eat caffeine. 
They also contained Tylenol, Benadryl, and Prozac. Why? Because feeding them all the caffeine made them get the jitters, and they had to feed them the other things to calm them down. Can you imagine chickens on Prozac? And then you wonder if you, and there hasn't been any studies of this, but you wonder, is that stuff getting taken up by your plants and put in the food that you eat and having an impact on your mental health and your physical health that you weren't aware of? Because most of the even um, fertilizers that you buy, like in the box stores like Lowe's and Home Depot, uh, most of them, their main component is chicken litter. So that's kind of unnerving. Okay. So that's why, just to um, wrap it up here, that's why it's, I think, when I talk at the beginning about the give and it will be given unto you, when you look at the benefits that you can receive from gardening, the fact that it's going to improve your health, improve your state of mind, improve the strength of your brain, and give you the opportunity of knowing what you're actually eating so that you can have safe food. Yes? What about the seeds that you buy or the, the wheat that you use to grind for your bread? Do they have What we're doing, the, the wheat is not genetically modified. Uh, Monsanto tried to get that through and that did not succeed. But um, the, the interesting thing is, is that um, we get our wheat from our sister company, One Degree, which they use veganically grown wheat. So we are confident that there is not going to be any manures put on, on the wheat that we use. But those are all factors that, those are definitely factors that, that come into play. That's why we use plant-based fertilizers in our farming here, our farming in Arizona, and I certainly would encourage you to do that. And uh, with that note, I'm just going to tell you what we're going to be talking about this week. Um, tomorrow I want to talk about building nutrient-rich soil for nutrient-dense food. So what can you do to make your soil more healthy, to grow better plants? And um, Wednesday, a simple plan to grow more food more easily in a smaller space than you might think. And uh, Thursday, intelligent weed control. And I don't think that working hard at controlling weeds is intelligent. That's because I'm lazy. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting comment here. The gentleman in front was saying that, uh, is it your son or son-in-law? Son. His son is working at a pharmaceutical plant in uh, southern Michigan, and the, um, they're producing antibiotics off that factory assembly line 24 7, 365. And um, those are going out there to get into your, into your life and cause you problems. And then Friday, I want to talk about gardening for the end times. And I think that you're going to be um, interested in the approach that I think uh, I would like to look at for that. Yes. When I harvest a carrot in the garden, I kind of wipe it off on my jeans and then eat it. But uh, I certainly wouldn't do that if I was making that for Sabbath dinner. Um, you know, I would wash it. But I do not believe, if you know what you are growing, 
and you know what went on there, and you are confident that there's not a lot of uh, stuff getting in there that you don't want. And you're not using any animal products, right. like bone That's meal, blood meal, manure, all then, that. Uh, then, then you definitely, definitely don't want to use soaps and things like that on it because soaps are antibiotic in their nature. They're going to unbalance the microbes. They're going to kill some of the microbes that are going to provide you the benefit that you got from growing it in the first place. So with that said, okay, I'm, uh, I'm a few minutes past my, uh, my official ending here, so. So I just wanted to say really quick on the store, um, fertilizer and stuff, it's not that we're limited on it, but we're having students bag it up to sell it there. So get down earlier in the week versus later because you may not be able to get it later in the week if you do want it. And um, yeah, we look forward to seeing And that. also we have blueberry kale smoothies for you to taste and a fabulous kale salad for you to taste because like he said, I think that three quarters of gardening is getting excited about what you can grow. And kale is the easiest thing for you to grow. And it even looks pretty. You can plant it in amongst your flowers if you don't have a big garden. And so I just think it's fun to learn all sorts of fun ways to eat kale. All right. You can have a prayer for us to close. All right, let's close. Our dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you so much that you've given us uh, this opportunity to learn about the amazing uh, ways you've created this earth and what you've created for us to do. And I ask, Lord, that you will help us to learn as this coming week is going by more about how to garden and uh, more about you and what you're doing for us through the plants. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.